Amen. Can we thank Brian for the announcements this morning? There was a lot of them and he did well. All right. So this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's known as the love chapter. And specifically, our text this morning is the text that just about every minister or any uh, person that conducts a wedding ceremony always finds themselves reading. And so this passage is often read, and there the bride is all teary-eyed, and sometimes the groom, his bottom lip is shaken as he's looking at his bride-to-be, and there the bridesmaids are emotional, and out in the, the public where the onlookers, they're thinking about their own life and potentially getting married and thinking about settling down. And there's all this emotion going on during that wedding ceremony, and particularly when our passage this morning is being read. Unfortunately, when Paul originally penned this uh, portion of scripture, he was not thinking about emotion. He was not thinking about a a wedding ceremony. He was not thinking about butterflies in the stomach and warm and fuzzy feelings. In fact, if you want to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 4, we see love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, and so on and so forth. And in English, we read that and we see that love is, and then their adjectives, things that go on to describe love. When Paul writes this, and in Greek, these are actually verbs. They're not adjectives describing love. They're telling us what love is doing. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how agape is not an emotion, It is not something like phileo or storge or eros where it's highly passionate, highly emotional. Agape goes to the next level and it's distinctively talking about the act of the will. And it is a verb. It is an action item. Love is working. And so this morning, when we go through our passage, it's not so much the lovey-dovey. Paul is telling us what love is actually doing, how it actually conducts itself. It is a word that is in motion. Love is something that is always at work. And so if you uh, are a note taker, we have just a very simple outline for you. And Denisa can put the slide up. There's three points to this passage. One, we have love is. And then Paul goes and tells us what love does not do. And then Paul goes and tells us what love does do. And so this gives us the do's and the don'ts and what love actually is as it is being lived out in the life of the believer. So let's read the passage and then we'll get into it. First Corinthians chapter 13, we'll do verses four through seven. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And next week we'll look at love never fails. So let's first look at what love is, then what it doesn't do, and then what love actually does. So love is patient. Now, that Greek word patient is two words that have just been collided and slammed into one. And it's the Greek word macrothumia. Now, macro, we know what that word is. Thumos means something hot or seething or boiling or raging. 
So in English, we have this little container called a thermos. And what does a thermos do? Keeps the liquids hot inside. That's the idea of thumos. It's this seething, boiling, hot, raging emotion inside. And Paul uses it in Galatians 5, speaking of the deeds of the flesh. And in Galatians 5.20, he says thumos. And it's translated bursts of or out. What is it? Goodness. Outbursts of wrath. There we go. Or outbursts of anger. Thumos is that that emotion where you just snap. So we have little verbiages like he's hot-headed. So when someone's hot-headed, what do you what do you know them as? They have a, a bad temper. Or you've maybe said this once or twice, I was just boiling or bubbling inside. And you're conveying the message that you're angry. That's thumos. Now, macro is large or long. We look at macroeconomics, you're looking at the big picture. So macro thumeo means someone who can take a lot without exploding. They have this ability to take and take and be ridiculed and be abused and, and be hurt and be really scoffed at and not get revenge. And so it's translated patient. It's even more accurate, long-suffering. And that's the idea of macrothumia, a person who is long-suffering, who can just take it and take it and take it, and they're not exploding and out to get revenge. Now, the best example of being patient and long-suffering is none other than God himself. If you turn to Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we see, that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, and there's our word there, macrothumia, toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, when we think about God, there are 8 billion people on this earth. What percentage do you think actually love, adore, obey, and do all that they can do to, to honor and please God? I, yeah, probably not even 2%, right? I don't want to put a number on it, but it's probably very, very, very small of the 8 billion people in the world. The vast majority either don't know God, don't obey God, hate God, despise God, never thank God for any of the blessings. And yet, he causes the sun to rise in the east and set in the west. He causes the rain to to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Even the most staunch atheists, have beautiful children, successful careers, fantastic meals. They experience the joys of life. This common grace God extends to every single human, even though most of them hate him, do not acknowledge him at all. We see a beautiful patience and long-suffering with God. Now, if I was in the position of God, I would have done away with this world probably 25,000 times over. Right? There would have been floods and hell, fire and brimstone and everything. And if you think I'm bad, put yourself in God's position. You'd probably do the same thing. Imagine a person their entire life despising you, and yet you continue to bless them. That's the idea of patience. God is patient because God is love. Now, there's another guy in the Bible who is described as having this type of long suffering. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, 
Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, and there's our word, macrothumia, he obtained the promise. So there's a guy named Abram. And you remember Abram, God gave him a promise when he was 75 years old. You remember what that promise was? He'll make him a great nation. So he says, Abram, go outside, look at the stars. Okay, if you can number them, if you can number the sands of the sea, that will be the number of your descendants. Now, Abram was old and his wife was old and they were way past the years of childbearing. So this was an impossible promise, at least from a human perspective. And the word Abram, his name means exalted father. Now imagine going to the marketplace, shaking hands with everybody and saying, hi, my name's the exalted father. Oh, how many kids do you have? None. And then there's three strangers that come and they reiterate the promise to God. And what is Abram's wife doing in the background? She's eavesdropping. She hears it. And then what does she do? She laughs, scoffs, she mocks. Impossible. Can't happen. And yet you see Abram's life. He never lashed out. He never didn't believe God. He never lost his temper. He never stopped believing. In fact, the Bible says, Abram believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. Well, this went on one year. It went on five years. It went on 10 years. It went on two decades. And in the 24th year, Abram was 99 years old and God begins to troll Abraham even more. God goes and tells Abraham, or Abram, I'm not only going to follow through my promise, I'm going to change your name. And you are no longer going to be Abram, you're going to be Abraham. Abraham means the father of many nations. So here God is saying, your name is the father of many nations, 24 years after the initial promise, and God still hasn't delivered. In fact, 25 years later is when God comes through with this promise. And the entire time, Hebrews tells us, we have Abraham who was patient or long-suffering. He never ridiculed God. He never lashed out at other people for laughing at him. He was long-suffering. Now, it's interesting because Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Now, the Greeks, they believed that patience or macrothumia was weakness. They were actually weak people who wouldn't lash out. So you had a guy named Aristotle, maybe you heard of him, and he writes a bunch of virtues. The number one, it's called the great virtue of the Greeks, is the ability to lash out at those who have lashed at you. In other words, Aristotle taught that the strength of the Greeks was to fight back, which is the exact opposite of what love is. Now look at the Corinthian church. When someone of their, one of their brothers wronged them, what did they do? Do you remember how that, they lashed out? They took their brother and where did they go? To court. The exact opposite of loving. You see, the Greeks, they always fought back. Alexander the Great, all of them. They, their culture was that of retaliation. Here Paul is writing to this church that is unloving at the core, who are going around suing each other, fighting each other over a, a plethora of things. And Paul is saying, you must be patient because love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Now let's look at number two. Love is kind. Now when you think of kind, 
What pops in your head? I'll tell you what pops in mine. Mr. Rogers. He immediately pops in my head. I think of an old guy with a cardigan, soft-spoken, quiet. I think of an old lady baking oatmeal cookies who's uh, overly optimistic. That's what I think of when I think of kind. I think of someone soft and sweet. The Greek word kind is not that at all. It's literally the act of benevolence. And at the root word, it means to be useful. So love is kind means love is benevolent or generous and is useful to other people. Again, it's an action word, right? So being kind is doing good deeds towards other people. Now, when you marry these two terms together, love is patient, love is kind, you have a beautiful picture of love because patience is taking in evil and not returning it, right? And kindness is giving out good even if they don't return it. So you have this beautiful picture of someone doing evil to you, and then you, in turn, what do you give back? Goodness, kindness, generosity. Now, if you turn to Luke 6, you have the this teaching of Jesus. And I say to myself, you to say to yourself, how in the world can anybody live like this? And the key is loving by being patient and kind. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great for you will be the sons of the most high for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men be merciful just as your father is merciful so you say how can i do that it's by having patience and then returning kindness in its stead there's an an old illustration and it's dealing with two men on a mountain One guy is on a trail and he's heading east. The other guy's on a trail and he's heading west. And they meet up at an impasse where the trail is only one foot wide and then it falls off the cliff. So the illustration goes on and asks, how do the men pass each other by? How do they do it without one falling to his death? And the answer is one lays down while the other walks on his back. And that really is the most perfect picture of this idea of biblical kindness. To lay down so somebody walks over you and in turn you bless them looking for nothing in return. That's the idea of kindness. That is what love is. It is patient or long-suffering and it is an act of benevolence being useful to other people. So that's what love is. Now let's look at what love does not do. 
Love is the antonym or the opposite of these next things. And there's eight listed here. Love is not jealous. So you think of jealousy, what pops to your mind? Green-eyed monster, never heard that one before. (laughs) Oh, I get it. I get it now. (laughs) What's that? Nice. Okay. You want something in return. So was that envy? That's a good one. And that's actually the biblical term Paul is using here. If you have your Bibles other than an NASB version, it probably says the word envy there. When I think of jealousy, I think of a guy and a girl at a gym and one of them is vibing with someone else and that person gets angry or jealous. They, they begin to burn with passion. That's not really the idea. The idea here is coveting or jealousy. Now what is, or, uh, envy. So what is envy? It's twofold. Envy, number one, one side of the coin is I want what you have. And that's envy. And we see that in Exodus 20, 17. There's 10 commandments, and the very last commandment deals with coveting or envy. In Exodus 20, 17, number 10 of 10 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So this idea of love not being jealous means love does not desire what another person has. So you have a neighbor and he's looking across the street and he sees your wife. And he's like, she cooks for him. She's endearing. She's affectionate. And she's a pretty young thing. And then you look at your wife and she, you say she's an old raggedy thing. And she hasn't cooked for me once in a year. And she hasn't done anything for me. And she's just mean and she's frustrating me and so on and so forth. That's the idea of jealousy. You are desiring what someone else has. And the problem with that is you begin to despise what you do have. It's this idea of compare and contrast. You say, well, my wife doesn't look like that wife. My wife doesn't cook like that woman cooks, so on and so forth down the way. You begin to despise what God has given you. That's one side of envy, and that's one real trouble of envy. But it goes even deeper because there's a there's a second aspect of jealousy. That's why uh, uh, Solomon would write, and he would say that jealousy is rottedness to the bones. Because there's a a deep side of envy, and that is not just desiring what someone else has, but hating the person that has it. For example, you say, how come they got the job promotion? I was more qualified. I was more skilled. I put in more time. I have more seniority. And because of X, Y, and Z, they got it. And then you begin to hate that person. Jesus gave a parable of the prodigal sons. And most people just focus on the first son when the story is really about the father and the second son. So there's this story that Jesus tells, and you probably heard it many times, where a father had two sons. And the first son asks for his inheritance, and then he goes to the Vegas of his day and blows it. He's with prostitutes, and he's just making it rain everywhere. And now he's broke and now he's uh, having to feed pigs and now he's literally homeless and he says, I need to go back to my father's house, even if I'm just a slave. So he makes his way back and the father runs to him. And what does the father do? 
embraces him, loves him. Not only that, he gives him a new robe and new sandals on his feet and a, and a ring, which would carry the signet of his family saying, you belong to me and my family as a son. And then he goes and he takes a fatted calf and they have this huge celebration. Meanwhile, at the ranch, Luke chapter six, uh, 15, verse 25, we see the second son. And this is the really the picture of jealousy taken to its extreme. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had celebrated and rejoiced for this brother of yours was not dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You see, jealousy to his extreme is not just wanting what someone else has, not just the fatted calf. It's actually despising the person who has it. And think through in the Bible, why did Cain kill his brother? Because he was able. No, no, that's terrible. It was jealousy. Cain killed Abel because he was jealous of the sacrifice. And then what else? Not just the sacrifice, but what else? How God had responded to the sacrifice. And he became jealous to the point where he hated his brother and that led to the murder. Look at Joseph. Why did his brother sell him off into slavery? They were jealous, not just of the coat, but and not just because of the love of the father, but that transformed into actually hating Joseph. Look at David and Saul. Saul came back and David came back and the people were singing David's praise. And what happened to Saul? What did Saul want to do to David? Kill him. Why? He was jealous of the fact that his name had become great, greater even than his own. You look in the New Testament, the religious leaders wanted to kill Paul. Acts 17, because of the success of that ministry. You see that jealousy going to its full extent actually becomes deadly. It becomes extremely vile, rottedness to the bones. Love is not that. Love actually rejoices when people are successful and have good things and are really doing well in life. For example, you do not become jealous of your children when, let's say, your son hits a home run or your daughter comes back with straight A's. You're not jealous and envious of that because you love them. You are so happy for them. Now, a coworker or a neighbor or someone that you don't have that same love for, you may become jealous. Love does not envy what it does not have. Look at the second thing love does not do. Love does not brag. 
Now, this is a very close word to what we know in English as perpetuate. So if a person perpetuates a lie, what does that mean? They continue to tell it over and over and over and over and over again. Bragging is self-inflating of the ego over and over and over and over and over again. Bragging is so close to pride, but it is the verbal form of pride. It's pride through word. And what bragging does is it's self-superiority. It's saying, I am better than you are. And I am better than you are because of the job I have and the family I have or the success I have, so on and so forth. It's always elevating at the expense of everyone else. God created man in his own image. Braggers create themselves in their own image. They say, this is who I want to be. This is who I want you to recognize me as. When you look at King Nebuchadnezzar, there he stood on his little patio and he looked to the empire And what did he say? Look what these hands have built. That is bragging at the core of everything. That is the epitome of bragging. Look what I have done. Aren't I just amazing? It's interesting. There's this, there's this old saying and it says empty trucks make the loudest noise. And I know that as a former truck driver, I used to drive bottom dumps and we, we transported rock and we transported dirt to make cement. And when my, I had a full payload, the truck ran smooth and it was nice and quiet. When I emptied it, the, the containers are bouncing up and down. It's really loud. The truck is driving really, really rough. And that is humans at the core. The people who have the least amount to offer are oftentimes the loudest. And that are, that is at the core, at the core of it, bragging. People who say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Now, love does not brag and is not arrogant. Now, this Greek word is to swell up and it's the picture of a puffer fish. What does a puffer fish do when it's threatened? Inflates, right? And it wants to make itself appear larger than it really is. This is the idea of arrogance, to swell up, to inflate. Really at the core, it's pridefulness. I am proud of who I am. Look at what I have done. Now, the Corinthians, they had a real issue with pride. This word arrogant is found six times in this whole book. Only six times from Genesis to Revelation. Five times it's found in 1 Corinthians. So that just goes to tell you and I, the real issue at the heart of the Corinthian church was pride. It was arrogance. And love does not boast. Love is not proud. So we see the first example at the Corinthian church in um, chapter 4, starting at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become, and there's our word, arrogant in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast? And there's our word that we just left, as if you had not received it. 
So here, the Corinthian church, they were bragging, they were boasting, and that caused them to have their ego swell up. They were big-headed. Now, if you look at verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. And then in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, we see an example of their pride. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one who had done this thing would be removed from your midst. And then in chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but what does love do? Edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So here we have a real description of what this arrogance is. It's supposing to know things. It's thinking that you know better than someone else, and that causes you to be proud and arrogant and prideful. Love does not brag, is not arrogant. And look at verse 5, going back to our text. We have the next thing that love is not. Love does not act unbecomingly. Now, that's a word we don't use very often in in English. What does unbecomingly mean? And Probably the cheat sheets there, darn. <laughs> Rude, right? Bad conduct. Ill-mannered. It's to be rude. Love is not rude. So what is being rude? Rude is essentially saying, I'll do whatever I want and I don't care how it affects you. So maybe rude at the dinner table is the wife can't stand when people burp. And there the husband gives a loud belch and all the kids start laughing. That's the idea of rude because he knows that she hates it. He does it anyway. And all everybody goes along with it as a joke. Love does not do that. Love is not something that is ill-mannered. Love is not something that doesn't respect someone else. Love is not rude. Let's, let's see the next one. It does not seek its own. Again, just like patience, this is two Greek words slammed together. We have seek and we have own. Now, the word seek is literally an archer staring at a target. Or you think of a marksman staring at a target. If you go shooting, the what what is the rifleman or the marksman looking at? He's not looking at the beautiful sky or the birds passing by. He's fixated. He's gazing only at one thing, the target. The bullseye, right? It's just laser-locked focus on one target, one thing. And the word own means benefit. And so when Paul says love does not seek its own, what he's saying is a person who loves is not saying what is in it for me. They're not looking at what the, the self-benefit is in this particular situation. So some people will only help if it benefits them. If there's something on the back end, you hear people say all the time, well, what's in it for me? Unfortunately, in Christianity, and this is the truth, is if you truly are living 
after Christ, loving God and loving people, many times you will get the short end of the stick, at least temporarily. Many, many, many times there will not be any benefit to you in the short term. That's why the Bible is going to bless his faithful servants in the end, right? There's going to be a day where there's a reward ceremony in heaven. And all the things we've done on earth, there will be blessing and there will be honor and there will be fruit and, and um, gifts given. Unfortunately, this side of heaven, many, many times you serve and you help and you bless and there's no reciprocation. There's no, you know, uh, being front loaded and being blessed immediately. You look at Paul the Apostle, who is the author of this book. His name was formerly what? Anybody know what Saul means? It means asked for. And if you think of Saul's life, he was the, the shooting star of Judaism. He was really the, the up and coming party leader. He sat at the finest teacher's feet and he learned the law of God and he was so gifted and so smart and he had so many things going for him and he was extremely well respected. And so this guy whose name means asked for becomes saved and his name becomes Paul. Anybody know what Paul means? Little and humble. So here he goes from a man who was asked for and well-received in the Jewish community to now little and humbled who was despised in the Jewish community. And he lost all his perks. And he's being chased and persecuted and imprisoned and beaten with rods and beaten with whips and bit by a poisonous snake and hungry and tired and cold and shipwrecked in the ocean and all of these things. And ultimately... He's beheaded and he's murdered and martyred for the faith. Now, when you look at his life, you say there was no real benefit. There was no self-benefit in his life. That's the way of the Christian. Love does not seek self-benefit. Love is not out for it himself or itself. Remember in Easter a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a woman named Salome. Do you remember that or no? You can just, you can lie. It's okay. We're just in church. There's a woman named Salome and she, she had two boys. Anybody remember their names? <laughs> it's okay. James and John. Remember James and John and they were two of the 12 apostles and Salome goes to Jesus and she asks for a favor. Now, do you guys remember what that favor was? What is it, Bertie? When you get into your kingdom and you establish your kingdom, can you have one sit on the left and one sit on the right? What is she really asking? She's not asking about them having an actual seat. What is she asking? Can they be right hand of the king? What is What comes with the hand of the king? What comes with being able to sit on the right and the left? Power. She's really asking Jesus, can my sons benefit in your kingdom? Can they have a position where they get awesome perks? She's asking for self-benefit. She's asking that they actually get great things, a benefit package for following Jesus and serving him. Well, it's interesting because that didn't, it doesn't seem like that was her idea. If you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 24 through 28, we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 20, verse 24. I'll start at verse 23. 
And he said, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So the disciples all hear this and Verse 24, and hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. So again, it's probably not Salome's idea. They said, let's go send mom. She's not going to deny our, he's not going to deny our mom. He's going to give us exactly what they want. It's the idea of we're going to benefit in this gig. And then verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now here's our example of doing the exact opposite of not being in it for self-benefit. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, that's love. It is self-sacrificial at the very core, not looking to benefit from its actions. Now, going back to our text in 1 Corinthians, let's look at the next thing that love does not do. Love is not provoked. Now, the word provoked means easily irritated or agitated. So if you have a person who has a very short fuse and they're easily agitated and they're easily aggravated at things, they're probably not loving. If you go to the fast food line and it's taking one minute more to get your double cheeseburger and you're flipping out, you're probably not in that place of love. That's a shameful nod right there, John. You're probably not in a place of love. If someone is, you know, stopped at the traffic light and it's green and you're sitting there like, what are these dum-dums doing? You're honking your horn and telling them to move, you know, it's probably not love. Love is not easily agitated or aggravated. If you think about it, the positive side of love is that idea, macrothumia, patience. The negative side is not easily provoked. So if you're patient, you're not easily provoked. And if you're easily provoked, you're not patient. It's just two sides of the exact same coin. The next one after not being provoked is love does not take into account wrongs suffered. Here again is two words slammed into one. We have one, the word taken to account, and it's the word logizomai. We get the idea of logic, and it's specifically used of crunching numbers. It's used of an accountant who takes a balance sheet and then begins to take the numbers and calculate them. The second one is sin. So love does not go and take record of other people's sin. Love doesn't say, well, my mom did this in 2010 and my mom did that to me in 2015 and in 2018 this happened and 2021 this happened. Therefore, I can't love her because of her track record. X, Y, and Z, one, two, three. She's, I've crunched the numbers and I found that she's sinned against me so many times that I can't deal with her. That's what love isn't. In fact, if you turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 8, we get this interesting picture or this idea. Romans chapter 4 and verse 8. Now, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and he says, Blessed is the man 
who sin the Lord will not, and then here's our word, logizomai, take into account. So when you think of God, before we were sinners, before we were sinners, before we were saved, we were sinners. And so God took into account all our wrongdoings. So if you think of an accountant, you think of finance. Your life was like an account, and you were deeply indebted to God. You owed God, your your account was overdraft, and you owed God an innumerable amount of money that you can never in a hundred lifetimes pay back. And then what did God do? God sent his son, you believed in his son, and then the account balance was wiped away. That debt was forgiven, the account says paid in full, and then he did something else. He imputed to you Christ's righteousness. That The word imputed is the word logizomai. He took your debt, paid it off, and then he took, took, took Christ's funds and he transferred them or accredited them into your account. So you open your spiritual bank account and you see all this money in there. And it's not because of what you have done. It's because of what Christ has done. And God accredited or logizomai accounted that as righteousness. So he takes your sin and he casts it as far as what? The east is from the west. He does not take into account your wrongdoings. Then he goes and he says, because of what God has done for you, how should we then treat each other? In the exact same way. So Jesus tells this parable. And the parable is right off the back of what Peter asks. He says, Lord, should I forgive my brother seven times? Again, he's taking into account how many times someone has wronged him. And what does Jesus say? I say to you 70 times seven or innumerable. You forgive your brother as many times as you need. In other words, you are not calculating how many times your brother has wronged you. And he tells this parable of two servants, one who owed an innumerable amount of debt and the king forgave him. And the second one that owned a little debt, but the king or the person who owed that debt would not forgive him. And so Jesus is making this point because God has not accounted or taken into account all that you've done wrong against him. You are to do so against your brother. In other words, love does not look at a person's sin and then say, well, because you've done X, Y, and Z, therefore I cannot trust you. Love at the heart of it forgives. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now look at the last uh, love does not. And it's found in verse 6a. Chapter 13, verse 6a. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now, unrighteousness is doing the opposite of what God likes. It's not being right in God's eyes. It's not doing the right things. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now, if you look at our world today, the world loves unrighteousness. They celebrate unrighteousness. They even use the word love. Love is love, and they parade in the streets unrighteousness. Love is not that. Love doesn't cherish the abortion clinic. Love doesn't cherish violating God's marriage 
vows and God's design for marriage. The world rejoices in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love hates unrighteousness primarily for two reasons. Number one, God is love and sin or unrighteousness is a reproach or an affront to God. Therefore, love cannot rejoice in unrighteousness. God is love and God hates sin. So if you rejoice in unrighteousness, then you aren't loving God. Number two, sin kills. What happened in the garden? Eve and Adam, they ate of the fruit. They violated God's command. And what entered in? Sin and the wages of sin is? Marriage died. Creation groans and dies. You and I are aging and we will die. That's a direct result of sin. Sin kills. But what does love do? RG said it earlier edifies, builds up. Love is life-giving. So because love is life-giving and because uh, God is love and hates sin, love cannot rejoice in sin and unrighteousness. It is theologically and logically impossible. So we looked at what love is. We looked at what love does not do. Now let's finish with what love does do. Verse 6b and verse 7. But love rejoices with the truth. Now, when Paul is writing about the truth, I believe he's specifically talking about God's truth. Because love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, which is the things that God doesn't like, but rejoices in the truth. So when we think about truth, I believe that the rejoicing of truth is twofold. One, it knows God's word, and two, obeys God's word. Or in two words, double D, doctrine and devotion. When you know what God wants and you do what God wants, love rejoices. But you must have both. It's like a bird with two wings. Both wings have to flap and they both have to do it simultaneously. If the bird only has one wing or it is only using one wing, that bird ain't flying anywhere. But Loving, rejoicing in truth is knowing God's word and doing God's word. And so we see it in Matthew, I'm sorry, John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, he who has my commands, that's doctrine, and keeps them, that's devotion, is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So there are people all over the world. There are some people who just celebrated a religious holiday yesterday where they are uber devoted. They go on missions. They go on pilgrimages. They give to the poor. They fast. They do all of these things, but they have the incorrect doctrine. What do you think their devotion profits them? Nothing. They will be before the Lord and they will bear no fruit because they've denied their Savior. Now, there are other people who have been in church their entire life. They know the Word of God. They know the gospel. They've gone from Genesis to Revelation. They know every nook and cranny of Scripture, but they don't do it. And so James says, be doers of the Word and what, and not hearers only deceiving yourself. So what does it profit a person if they know the Bible and they don't obey the Bible? It profits them nothing. 
Rejoicing in truth is understanding doctrine and then the devotion or following through in obedience in doctrine. Second John verse four through six. John writes, this is probably a book you've never read before, or rarely. To John verse four. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. The receiving of the command is doctrine. The walking in the truth is the devotion. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. The hearing from the beginning is doctrine. The walking in it is the devotion aspect of it. So love rejoices in the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things. We're almost done. I know it's a lot. 15 terms here. Love bears all things. The word bear means to suppress or to keep silent. Now, what is Paul meaning when he's saying love keeps silent or suppresses all things? The context here is in when someone else sins. Now, when someone else sins, unbelievers or people who operate in the flesh, maybe they hear of their girlfriend who cheated on their husband at the club, and they hear this fat, juicy bit of gossip, and they get excited over it. And they're like, ooh, I got to tell so-and-so. Ooh, I got to put it on the message board. Ooh, I'm going to blog about this, so on and so forth. There's an excitement over it. When you love someone, you want to suppress that. In other words, you want to work with them through it without dragging their name through the mud, without slandering their character, without making it such a public ordeal that they are even worse than when they started off. It's the idea of hearing a sin and then love covering a multitude of sins. It's not brushing it under the rug. It's not accepting of it. It's the idea of working through it without going public, working behind the scenes so that you're not damaging their character any more than it already is. That's the idea of bearing all things. Here's the second aspect. Believes all things. And this is the idea of love sees the best in people. Love sees the best in people. They may be struggling in sin. They may be faltering. They may be all over the map as far as doing good things. But love is able to just see that light. Like the Jews, for example, they teach because of Genesis that all men were created in the image of God. Therefore, all people have the light of God in them. They may be hopeful and sinful. They may be all kinds of a wreck as far as their decision-making, but every single human has the light of God, even if it's buried somewhere within them. The idea of love being able to um, believe all things is seeing that light, seeing the good in people. An example is Jesus. His disciples in his ministry were just absolutely all over the place. Jesus would teach and teach and teach and they wouldn't remember. Jesus would give example after example and they would do the opposite. 
over and over and over again, the Lord would pour into his guys and he was not seeing any fruit. And in fact, even on the night he was betrayed, what happened to all his boys? They ran away. They completely abandoned and ditched him. And yet Jesus would tell Peter, when you return, strengthen your brothers. Jesus saw the good, the light. He saw that things in people were there. And that's the idea of believing all things. For example, in my life, my wife, she is an example of believing in me. So when I started day trading, I was losing, 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 losing. It was so hard. I got to a real dark place where I kept telling myself I'm a loser. I'm a no good nobody. You know, here I am thinking I was going to be the 1% and how foolish I was to quit my job and fill in the blank. Dark, 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 self-defeating kind of lingo. And my wife would just come and say, I believe in you. You can do it. And now five years later, over the course of time, I'm like, you know what? Now I'm getting my bearings and I'm getting my feet underneath me. Had she told me to quit, I would have quit. Had she not believed in me, I would have not believed in myself and I wouldn't be where I'm at. She loved me through believing in me. That's the idea of the love here. Love believes all things. Sees the good in people, it roots them on, it's the support system behind the actual action. Love believes all things. Next, hopes all things. This is the idea of optimism. Biblical hope is the absolute belief in coming good. It's not like wishing upon a star. It's not, well, I, I hope it happens, but I don't know if it will. Biblical hope is it will happen. All things work together for good. This is a guarantee. I know it will happen. I don't know if it's going to be like Abram 25 years down the road. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen. That's the idea of hopelessly optimistic. That's uh, hoping all things. That's love seeing the glass half full and knowing I don't know when, but I know it will happen. And the last one, hope endures all things. And that's a military term. It's actually used of a military uh, personnel being placed in the center of battle and not giving up. It's being in the very heat of the fight and literally being entrenched. So you dig a trench and you endure. You fight and you fight and you fight and you never stop fighting. You never give up. You continue to shoot and you continue to throw grenades and you continue to advance forward. That's love. It doesn't give up on a spouse. It doesn't give up on other humans, no matter what their track record is. It doesn't give up on uh, subcultures within the community. Love continues to endure. Now, I want to close with this. Love is the noun, and then Paul describes that noun and gives us the, the action items behind the noun. Let's remove the word love and put a proper noun in there. Let's say Jesus. When you look at Jesus and you place his name in this text, you see that Jesus is, in fact, love. 
Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envious. Jesus does not brag about himself. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not seek his own self-benefit. He's not easily agitated. He doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Remember on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He does not rejoice in sin, but he rejoices in the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never fails. It so perfectly describes him that Jesus is love. Now, I want this as a litmus test for you because it shows where our strengths and weaknesses lie. Put your name in there. Is Chris kind? Is Chris patient? Is Chris not jealous? So on and so forth. And what you'll find of these 15 things is there's some areas where you say, I'm not too bad in that area. And there's some areas where you say, I wouldn't even say Chris is patient. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even utter those words because I know it's not true. And that gives us areas in our life that we can begin to allow God to work through. If I'm not patient, okay, God, how do I become patient? How, how can I, what are some things I must do in order to start correcting this? And so I would this week, Put your name in that passage and see what areas make sense and what areas are not true. And then you can begin to work in that specific area. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. You're just like, please, God, just go say it. Selfless. It's selfless love. You you give and you don't expect reciprocation. And that's that for the second term we looked at with kindness. It's laying down, having somebody walk on your back and not expecting for you to do the same thing. Exactly. And that is a good, a good litmus test of love. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, for the word. We thank you that you first loved us. Therefore, we love you. We thank you, God, that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that God so loved the world he gave. We thank you, God, that Christ so loved the church that he gave. We thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your life a ransom for many. Father, so many examples of sacrificial love. So many examples, Lord God, of your patience and your kindness. So many examples of you bearing all things and you enduring all things for our sake. And so, God, it's time that we return the favor to others. And so, We've all been damaged. We all are callous. We all deal with our natural flesh, Lord God. Many of us can't even fathom the thought of being slapped on one side of the cheek and turning the other. But God, this is what you've called the Christian to do, to do agape, to letting our uh, light so shine before men that they see our good works and they glorify you. And so God, help us do the impossible. Help us love the way that you loved us. 
Help us, Lord God, to love God and to love people, and all of the law and the prophets hinge on that. Help us to fulfill the law of Christ, which is agape. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.